2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8, says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, companies pay a lot of money for their commercials that they make to be effective, right? A lot of research, a lot of time and thought goes into it, I'm sure, or so I've heard. So I like to pay attention whenever I'm watching a a football game or whatever. I like to pay attention to the commercials because I'm curious. I'm curious what are they selling, really? And how are they selling it? Because the reality is, is they have done so much research into how we and our culture and our society think, how we operate, what will get us to buy the thing, to click the thing, that whatever, if I can figure out what they're doing, then I can figure out how we operate, right? What moves us. And one of the things that's interesting to me is watching uh, commercials for medicine or, or medical ads, particularly. And it's, it's interesting because if you listen to the commercials, you will hear them talk about whatever the medical condition is that their medicine fixes. And, and you'll hear them share the painful and uncomfortable symptoms that come along with that disease or that disorder or whatever. And you'll hear them talk about how the medicine is going to help them. And if you listen really, really carefully, you'll hear all the, the side effects that, that sound worse oftentimes, but... That's another story. But if, you, but if you don't just listen, if you watch the commercial, what, which is what they really know you're paying attention to, right? I mean, you might hear the, 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 this information that they say, but what you're really paying attention to is, is you're, you're watching the commercial, the story that the commercial is telling. And every commercial tells a story, right? If you watch it, you'll notice something very interesting. You'll notice that solving the pain and suffering of the medical issue typically takes a back seat to one single thing. You'll notice that they're not actually selling you on curing the problem. That's not what they're selling you on. What they are really selling is a solution to this one single problem across all of these medical ads. One thing, do you know what it is? Public embarrassment. That's what it is. Public embarrassment. Shame. It's never about the skin rash itself. It's always about people noticing it. It's never about the irritable bowel syndrome. It's about the social consequences of it. 
in particular situations. If you watch these commercials, you'll notice that's what they're really using to get you to buy their product. And of course, sick people want to be better, but companies know that that isn't what moves people nor moves product. We have a crazy ability to endure suffering in reality. You have an an enormous amount uh, of ability to endure suffering when you really want to. In fact, most of you, I would guess, would rather suffer than even have the embarrassment of telling the doctor what's wrong with you sometimes. There are times when I would rather just deal with the thing that's ailing me because it's embarrassing to go to the doctor even, and tell, even though the doctor's probably seen a hundred worse things than that. It's not the suffering so much as it's the shame. Last week we heard Paul encouraging Timothy And he's encouraging him that he doesn't have a spirit of fear, but he has a spirit of power and love and self-control. But but what is the fear? Fear of what? We discover the problem in the first verse of our passage today, verse 8. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And we're quick to assume when we read this, that the fear is fear of suffering. That, that the big thing that Paul is trying to address here is fear of suffering. He does, Timothy must not want to suffer like Paul is suffering. And Paul is suffering. He's writing this from prison. He's most likely going to die in a matter of months. He knows that his end is coming. But even then, the issue is not so much the suffering but it's the embarrassment. Notice he says, nor of me his prisoner. You see, Timothy is tied relationally to Paul. Everyone knows it. Paul installed him there in, in Ephesus. And now, and now people are going, but Paul is in prison. Paul is going to die. Paul is in chains. Some power Paul has, and, this, and, and we don't even have Paul, we have this schmuck that he installed here. Paul's situation appears shameful. And the gospel that Paul preached doesn't seem to have so much power, maybe as it once did. I see suffering is secondary to the primary command, even in the actual layout of of the the verse itself, the sentence itself. It starts not with suffering, but, but with do not be ashamed. Suffering is secondary to that primary command. Do not be ashamed. What hinders you from sharing the gospel? What hinders you from sharing the gospel? Suffering? No. No, not really. Let's just be honest with ourselves for just a second. No, not really. Lack of knowledge? No. Not really. If you know enough to be saved, you enough know enough to share the gospel. 
What is it? Most likely, it's fear of embarrassment. Either you're embarrassed to share it with someone else, what they might think of you, what they might say, or you're embarrassed that when you share it, you won't, you won't feel like you did it right, and then you have this inner shame about how, you know, oh, I, I didn't say the right thing, I didn't do the right thing, which is just Satan bringing shame into your life or doing a thing that God actually told you to do. This is, this is fear of shame. That's what keeps you from sharing the gospel. And so what do we do? We run. We avoid it. We become passive, which is exactly Timothy's issue that Paul is addressing in this letter. Stay in the fight. Stay in the fight, Timothy. Keep doing what you're supposed to do. So what's the solution? Here at the very beginning of our, of our letter, what is the solution? We see it in the flow of Paul's argument. He starts in verse 8 with this command to suffer without shame for preaching the gospel and being connected to those who preach it faithfully. And then he ends in verses 11 and 12 with his own example, Paul saying that, that he preaches it faithfully, he has preached it faithfully, and he suffers without shame. Yeah, I'm in chains, but I've got not an ounce of shame, Timothy, because I know. And so what happens in between? What is it that Paul is trying to use to move Timothy from where he is, afraid to where Paul is, unafraid, unashamed of the gospel. What is it in between in verses 9 to 10? Well, we see it at the, at the very end of verse 8, actually. It calls him to suffer by the power of God. By the power of God. Of God. You see, we find strength to be unashamed in the only place where true strength resides, and that is in God's sovereignty. And so, here in those verses in between verse 8 to the very end of our um, passage this morning, we find four empowering reasons. Four empowering reasons to be unashamed for the gospel. Four empowering reasons why you ha need not have any shame for the gospel, nor for anyone being associated with anyone who preaches it faithfully, even if, even if Satan wants you to feel shame, even if other people around you want you to feel shame, you have no reason to feel shame. You have four empowering reasons to be unashamed in God's power and salvation. Let me share those four with you. The first reason is this. God is powerful to call us effectively. God is powerful to call us effectively. He, he who saved us and called us to a holy calling. It is by the power of God that we are to share in suffering and be unashamed. And immediately Paul begins to describe this power in terms of God's power in salvation. God saved us. Timothy is reminded that this this is God, this is the God who saved him and called us. When Paul talks about God's calling, it's always effective. He's always talking about a calling that is effective. He, he says it is not because of our works. Do you see that in the middle of verse 9? Not because of our works. By nature, 
on our own, we will do not one single thing to move closer to God. In our nature, in the nature of every person who's born into this earth, they will not do one single thing on their own to move one single inch closer to God. We are not born in neutral. You need to understand that. We are not born in neutral. We are born pointed away from God. Without the work of God, nothing will happen. We can't even understand His Word because Paul says that His Word is only spiritually discerned. The power of salvation isn't found in Timothy's ears. It's not found in his brain. It's not found in his heart. It's found solely in the power of God. And this calling, Paul says, is a holy calling. The force of this is similar to what Paul told the Ephesians earlier in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, when he said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The calling itself is holy. It's God who sets us apart. We can't set ourselves apart to God, you understand. God is holy. He's completely other than we are. He is the creator. We're the creation. And so we have no power. How could a creation have power to set itself apart for the creator? No, the creator must do that. He must do that for us. And we are set apart then by God to holiness so we can be confident that if we apply ourselves to walking this way, it'll work. Not because we're so great, but because the one who saves us is powerful to do it. So to summarize this first reason, the power of God is seen in God's victory over our own sinful hearts in effectively calling us to himself when God or when Christ graciously beckons sinners to himself it is not a desperate begging from an impotent God rather it reveals a powerful and sovereign God who is patient and gentle to bring us to himself the second empowering reason is this God is powerful to fulfill his purpose. We said that this calling is based not on anything that we have done, but the passage says that it is based in the purpose and grace of God. This is God's purpose of election. Romans 9 11 says this, though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of His works, but because of Him who calls. See, God's powerful call is based on God's purposeful decisions. And the decision to give us this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus. When does it say it happened? Before the ages began, or literally translated, before times eternal. It's when it was granted to us. Ephesians 1, 4 says it this way, even 
as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul is just, he's just giving them the same gospel in every letter. The same thing. God's powerful to save. God's powerful to save through Christ. Again, the basis for calling us to salvation and into this holy calling is not anything that we have done, but God's intentional choosing. Now, now there may be some who would say to this that God, from eternity past, must have seen. He must, he must have saw what we would do, and thus He made His decision to call us, to, to elect us, based on that. Because he, he, he saw through the tunnels of time, if you will, what we would do in the future. But, but there are three problems with that, that view. First, The first problem is it destroys the point that Paul is making here. Paul's whole point, his whole argument is that we are called and called effectively precisely because God decided and not because of our works. That's his entire point. And so to say that God, before uh, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, looked ahead in time and saw what I would do, destroys the very essence of Paul's argument here. It can't have been that. Second, what works, what, sorry, my inflection was wrong there. Second, what works would God see in us anyway? If God looked ahead in time, to what I would do in the future, what would he see? What works would he see that would merit him to call me and save me? What could you possibly claim for yourself? What could God have seen in you that would warrant God sending his son to save you? What, what could it possibly be? Do you really think so grandly of yourself? Was it the constant sin? Was that it? Was it all the times that you were embarrassed to be associated with the God who saved you? Was it all the times that you were embarrassed to speak the truth that has brought so much life into your life? Was it all of those works that God saw? Indeed, it was only your sin that he saw that caused him to choose to put, bring his son into the world because he knew that there was no other way that you would be saved unless he chose you, unless he called you, unless he did every single drop of it. But someone might object, well, but what about my faith, Cody? See, God saw my faith. So here's my third reason why it doesn't work. Your faith is not your work in the first place. That ain't your work either. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is a gift from God. How is it his gift? Well, it's his gift because it only comes by the powerful work of his spirit. John 3 tells us, Jesus tells us in John 3, that no one can see the kingdom of God, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the Spirit, unless God gives the Spirit. Without the transforming work of the Spirit, we cannot have the faith that sees, this faith that sees God's kingdom. You understand, 
God chose you. Not because you're great, but because he's great. Not because you could do anything, because you know you, can't, you couldn't have done anything, but because he can do everything. And he called you. To summarize, God powerfully decides. He powerfully decides. And this is good news. This is good news because first, it makes it possible for someone to be saved. Without it, no one could be saved. But this makes it possible for someone to be saved since we'd never choose God on our own. We say, well, well, well if God chooses, if God chooses, then what about the people that aren't saved? But this is entirely the wrong way of thinking about it, isn't it? Because without God choosing, no one would be saved. All of us would get exactly what we deserve which is eternal damnation. Second, it makes it, it's not only possible for someone to be saved, it makes it possible for anyone to be saved. This grace is given to us in Christ before times eternal. Before you did anything good or evil, God didn't foresee what you would do, but God gave grace, the grace of Christ Jesus to you. That's what he did. He didn't see anything that you would give to him, but he gave you the grace of Christ Jesus before times eternal. That is good news. If God can give you that grace before the ages began, before you did any works, good or bad, then there is no sin, no sin in your life, that can stop him from saving you? None. So God is powerful to call us effectively. God is powerful to fulfill his purposes, but also God is powerful to deliver on deliverance. If you look with me in our passage, it says this grace is not only given to us in Christ, in eternity's past, but verse 10 tells us that it is also now manifested through the appearing of Jesus. So it was given in, time, in eternity past, but now in this moment, in, in a moment of time, in a moment of history, God himself came into the world and he manifested it through the appearing of Jesus Christ. And to Jesus' name, Paul adds here the title Savior to remind us of the effect of Jesus' incarnation in the world. And how did he save us, it says? He saved us by abolishing or destroying death. Now you, now you say, well, wait, 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 wait. But people still die, Cody. What do you mean he abolished death? People still die. How is, it, how is it he abolished death? Well, for starters, by faith we are saved from spiritual death. We are saved right now in Christ from the second death. Hebrews 2.14 says that by his death he defeated Satan who has the power of death. And in 1 Corinthians 15 it tells us even more. There in, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26, it says that he, he uses almost the same words as he uses here in 2 Timothy when he says that the last enemy to be destroyed or to be abolished is death. Because Christ died and defeated death in his resurrection, he has now ascended to the throne, reigning over all things, it says. 
And not all things rightly recognize his reign. As it says in Hebrews 2, though we don't see it, all things truly are subjected to him. And there in 1 Corinthians 15, it, it tells us that he is subjecting all things to himself. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, that Christ will reign until he has subdued all his enemies. And then it says the last enemy is death. You see, the death blow to death came in Christ's death and resurrection. That is where he inflicted the death blow. His heel was wounded, but the head of the serpent was crushed. And this happened, as our passage says, the end of verse 10, through the gospel, through the death and resurrection. But death, death at that point was given what you might call a terminal blow. A terminal blow. The, the confusion comes then when we detach Christ's death and resurrection from his current enthronement, wherein he is subduing all of his enemies, wherein he is still doing the work of his first visit to earth, subduing every enemy of his, that is, every enemy, to life. And the confusion comes when we detach Christ's death and resurrection from his return, which is the final act of all God, of all that God is doing in history. The day when he comes back and he puts death out of its misery. You see, death was given a fatal wound in Christ's resurrection, and one day Christ will return and he will put it out of its misery. But until that, until then, we get a taste of no death. In that Christ has brought life and immortality to light. We have life right now, right now in Christ. Jesus said in John 5, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have eternal life, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. Friends, if you are in Christ, you have passed from death to life. He has abolished death. You don't have to worry, but what if, what if, but what if? No. If you're in Christ, he has abolished death. You have passed from death to life. And yes, your physical body may perish, but you will never truly die. And one day, that physical body will be raised again and glorified in his presence forever. You may say, well, well, Cody, I don't doubt that God is powerful to deliver, but my question is, will he? Well, I don't doubt for a minute that God is powerful to deliver, but will he? Will he me? Really, I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? Will he actually deliver me? That's where the rubber meets the road. But what did our passage say? It says that Christ's work is a result of what? God's purpose and grace. God's purpose. That decision he made before the ages began, before history started. Therefore, God will deliver on deliverance to all those whom he has chosen and called. That is as sure a promise as God has power to do it. In fact, 
That's exactly what Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 6, verse 37. He, he says this, All that the Father gives me, remember, He gave grace in Christ before the ages began. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. He calls them effectively. We've already said that. And whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. He will deliver them. And then Jesus goes on to say this. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus applies his blood with laser precision. He never misses. He does exactly what the Father willed because he came to the earth not to do his own will, but the will of his Father, and his Father decided it before the foundation of the earth. God decided exactly who would be saved and called before the ages, no more, no less. Jesus brings about exactly what God's will is on the cross, no more, no less. As sure as Christ's word is true, his blood is sufficient. This is the gospel that Paul preaches. This is the gospel he's willing to suffer for. This is the gospel he goes, I'm in chains, I'm in prison, they're going to execute me. I don't know what that's going to look like. It's probably going to be hideous, but I have no shame because I live right now in Christ. You see, God is powerful to keep us. That's the last of our four reasons. He's powerful to keep us. And, and, and Paul, Paul gives this reason in, in two different sides. And this is really the crescendo of all the reasons for not being ashamed. First, Paul says, I know God. I know in who, him in whom I have believed. I know who he is. Paul does not say, I know, I believe in him. I want you to get that. Paul does not say, well, I know I believe in God. He does not ground his, his confidence, his certainty in his own belief. Rather, he grounds his confidence and his certainty in the one he believes in, in the person, Jesus Christ, right? He doesn't put the weight of his trust on his own subjective belief. He says, I know whom I have believed. The weight of his subjective belief is on the one who is objectively trustworthy, who has objectively won the victory in history. It's not that Paul's faith is unimportant, don't get me wrong, not, not at all. But the strength of that faith is not found in the one believing, but in the one in whom he believes. The strength of your faith is not found in you and in how much faith you can muster up. The strength of it is found in the one, the object of your belief. But it's not just the person of Christ that, 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 he, knows that, is, that he knows where he knows he's powerful to keep him, but it's also the work 
Second, Paul knows God will keep his word. He'll keep his word. God is able. That is the word for power there. God is able. That word there is the same word that's, that's translated power elsewhere. And what is he able to do? What is he powerful to do? He's powerful to guard or to keep. And, and, and how, to what extent is he able to do that? Well, until that day, it says. That is the day of Christ's appearing in judgment. When Paul envisions himself, that day when Paul envisions himself receiving the crown of righteousness, and what is it that he is able to guard or keep until that day? What has been entrusted to me, Paul says, What's been entrusted to you, Timothy? The same Greek word is translated in verse 14, the deposit entrusted, or in 1 Timothy 6.20, if you remember, it's translated the deposit. In other words, it's this, this gospel message that is the basis of his faith, that is the basis of his ministry. It's, it's his own salvation and the salvation of all those he's preached the gospel to, the, the effectiveness of the gospel in the world, he knows, no, God is able to take that and do with it exactly what he's decided to do to effectively call all who he's effectively called, to, to, to save all those who Christ died for. He's able to do that. He's able to keep it to the very end. No one who believes that word need be ashamed when they suffer for it. The men, the kings, the civilizations that mock, imprison, or kill them will all die, but that truth will remain. Every leader that stands opposed to it will die, but Christ will carry on. Whatever the temporary setback, there is no reason for shame because we know that this gospel message is unstoppable because the God who guards it is all-powerful. It will not pass away. It will not pass away. Even to the very last day, it will not pass away. And on that day, all who proclaimed that gospel without shame will be perfectly vindicated. So to summarize this last reason, God's gospel and all those who proclaim it will be found on the right side of all history. You understand that? If you're on God's side, you're on the right side of history, always and forever, period. So what is Paul saying? This whole passage, I think, is trying to tell us this. By looking to the victory of God in Christ. We can suffer for the gospel without shame. Did you notice that Paul has laid out the gospel? He's reminded Timothy of what Christ has done without once talking about Christ's suffering, but only talking about Christ's victory. And when we face suffering, and when we face shame, and when we struggle with shame, for the gospel, for those who are faithful to the gospel, oftentimes the thing that we need to look at is not Christ's suffering in that moment, 
of Christ's victory. We need to look at Christ's victory and know that if we are in him, his victory is our victory. So what should we do? Well, there's at least two applications. We should see Christ's victory closely. This summer, we took a trip to the Black Hills. I don't know if you've ever been to the Black Hills. We took that famous route up to Mount Rushmore. You know what I'm talking about, where they cut out of the mountain a tunnel, you know, and you you come around the bend, and, and the tunnel frames Mount Rushmore out there. And I remember we came around, and it's like, oh, I thought it would be bigger. Still kind of far off, you know. But, it's, but it, was, it was neat, you know, you see, you see Mount Rushmore right there, and the classic dad joke, you know, that's, that's what it is, you know, I think I said that, oh, it'll be bigger, my head's bigger than that, I could put my thumb up and cover George Washington, you know, all the dad jokes, well, this is what we do to God, is it not? The immensity of all three persons of the Godhead are infinitely more, infinitely bigger, but we allow our fear of this or our fear of that or whatever to be so much closer, so much closer to our face, that we actually start to think that those things are bigger than God. We allow those little specks to blur our vision of Him, and then we become frustrated at God because He doesn't seem very big in our lives. God, where are you? And we can't figure out why we struggle with anxiety and with, and with depression and with fear and with doubts and all of these things. And so, we, so what do we do? We, we go, well, I'm going to look more intently at my own heart. And all we're doing is this. That's all we're doing. And Paul is telling Timothy, no, stop it. Look at Christ. Look to the power of God. Look at Christ's victory. Look at, look at Him. And when we pulled up closer to Mount Rushmore and we saw those massive heads, you know, and, and you're standing right underneath of them, you know, looking up George Washington's nose or whatever, and, and you're like, whoa. And, of course, they got the patriotic music going in the background, and, you know, all of a sudden I'm getting a tear in my eye, you know, moved. That's nothing. That's nothing compared to Christ. What he's done. How he has blessed us. How he has made us citizens of his kingdom. The kingdom he won through his death and resurrection. So the way way to cast out fear of man, the way to cast out anxiety, is to get a closer vision of the power of God through Christ by the Spirit. Second application is this, share Christ's victory boldly. See Christ's victory closely, but then also share Christ's victory boldly. When Paul mentions the gospel at the end of verse 10, he immediately identifies it as the thing that he is appointed to preach and to teach, right? This is why he's suffering for for bringing the gospel to others. He does it without shame because he knows who will keep him. He's confident that that not one word that he has spoken will return void, that every single one will do exactly what God intended it to do. But that doesn't mean that he thinks that it was by his power that even a single person is saved. No. You see, oftentimes we talk about evangelism and we define it as bringing people to Jesus, right? 
oh, you do evangelism, we're gonna, I'm going to bring some people to Jesus. But this is not the view that Paul takes, nor is it even biblical at all. So I think it's an important point to clarify. Evangelism is not bringing people to Jesus. You need to understand that. Evangelism is not an effect produced in our hearers, but the proclaiming and delivering of a message with a desire to see God save them. That's evangelism. It is the proclaiming of the message of who Christ is with a desire to see God save them. It is not the effect that we somehow produce in people because we can't produce any effect. If evangelism is about producing a particular effect of salvation in someone, we will fail 100% of the time because you can't do it. God is sovereign in salvation. We do not bring people to Jesus. We bring Jesus and his message to people. That's evangelism. So rather than thinking of evangelism in terms of, uh, you know, the industrial revolution, you know, how can, we be, how can we more effectively get this product out to the people quicker? We need to start thinking like the Bible talks about in terms of, say, farming, sowing, and reaping, trees and vines. There's no surefire way in our power to guarantee 30, 60, or 100-fold. But we know a couple of things. We know if we never till soil, if we never sow seed, if we never water plants, then there will be no fruit guaranteed. We know that. We do know that those who are faithful in a little, that God says He'll give them much. We know that. Therefore, if we farm the fields that God has placed us in in this moment... We don't know whether or not, what extent that will bring in a harvest. But if we are not faithful to farm what God has given us, you can be sure that he will not expand it. Timothy is being urged to do all that God, do what he's supposed to do with all that God has given him. And we must do the same. We must share this victory boldly. I want you to see that God hasn't given you an an assignment that you can't accomplish. We can proclaim the gospel and he can save whoever he decides to save when he decides to do it. He is powerful to do that. And even if you proclaim the gospel to all of your neighbors and every single one rejects you and they, 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 they form a petition to kick you out of the neighborhood, you know, the, the worst case, rest assured, God wins, Christ is victorious, and the biggest short-term losses, God turns into the greatest long-term gains. That's what he does. He's been doing it since the beginning. By looking to the victory of God in Christ, we can suffer for the gospel without shame. Let's pray.